0: THE MYSTERY OF THE SUPERNATURAL by Henri de Lubac CHAPTER 7 THE PARADOX UNKNOWN TO THE GENTILES Under different forms and with accentuations varying from one century and school to another, Christian philosophy thus developed the concept of a human nature which is open to receive a supernatural gift. Such a concept was unknown, of course, in ancient philosophy. There is nothing Aristotelian about it, though St. Thomas Aquinas, faithful to his method of conciliation and without any historical scruple, sometimes finds ways to express it in Aristotelian terms. But nor is it Platonic or Platonian, Though theoretically justifiable by reason, the fact remains that it was wholly shaped and developed in direct dependence on Christian revelation. St. Thomas was well aware of this and recalled it more than once. According to the teaching of our faith, secundum fidei nostre documenta, but according to the true faith, secundum autem veram fidem, etc. Notwithstanding a groping towards an afterlife or a better life, of which it is hard to discover in each case whether it is more a bodily or a spiritual one, we never do find such a conception expressed by the light of human thinking alone in any organized way. For it involves a whole philosophy of man, presupposing as its basis a certain notion of God which none of the old mythologies, religions, philosophical systems, or natural mysticism possessed. For reasoned thought to have arrived at it, there would have been a need not only for a belief in a creating God, but also for at least some suggestion of the charity God, Deus Caritas. For the ancient Greeks, and one may say almost the same of all thinkers, ancient and modern, other than those whose thinking flows from revelation, every nature must find in itself or in the rest of the cosmos of which it is an integral part all that it needs for its completion basically everything has always been perfectly balanced the apparent imbalance whether progress or regression is merely a phenomenon of flux and reflux within a totality that is already complete the universe is like a snake coiled upon itself its movement is necessarily eternal and circular. The well-known Stoic theory of the great year is only one systematization following many similar ones of this extremely widespread view. Novissima prima, that is its unchanging principle. One will ultimately gain no more than one had, though perhaps in a different form, from the first, or rather, from all time. One can do no more than regain possession of what one has momentarily, and, of course, only apparently, lost. The human soul, for instance, cannot be immortal, nor could it even have the possibility of immortality, unless it be eternal, in other words, properly divine. Immortal and God are frequently synonymous And it is the former that is always the stronger term, so much so that gods who are not immortal, like the gods of the transmigration in Buddhism, though their situation is temporarily a fortunate one, are in fact wretched beings whose lot is not envied by anyone who hopes for deliverance. The air that is within us is a fragment of divinity, said Diogenes of Apollonia. Every spirit is immortal, said Plato, for whatever moves forever is immortal. And Cicero later declared, The souls of men are divine, and the path back into heaven is open to them when they have left the body. Plotinus, in his turn, was to prove the immortality of the soul from its divine character. Aristotle, faithful to this same principle, considered that whatever has a beginning must have an end. This was generally taken to be the inevitable law of man, but there are exceptions. Take courage, say the golden verses, for you know that the race of men is divine. Realize that you are a God. This is the essential message of the dream of Scipio. This, says Macrobius, is the conclusion the consummation of the whole work. All the Indian sages similarly agree in considering absurd the idea that any being could have had a beginning and not have an end. They consider it axiomatic that whatever is subject to production must also be subject to destruction. This axiom still remains indisputable in our own time for Ananda K. Kumaraswamy, Hindu writings, he observes, never fall into the error of supposing that a soul which has had a beginning in time could be immortal. Tolstoy, in his last years, also had this idea, borrowed, no doubt, from India. If the soul remains alive after death, then it must have also lived before life. Unilateral eternity is meaningless." Anything which has not always existed can only be an ephemeral, or worse still, a cyclically ephemeral, contrivance. It would be quite impossible for such a being to break out of the circle of natural fatality. No ambrosia could have any effect upon him. We find this same fundamental conviction throughout the West, among the later disciples of the ancient philosophers. We thus find it, it seems, though in a more moderate form, even in Boethius, who could only believe in the immortality of human souls, because he believed in their pre-existence in a cosmos whose permanence reflects the eternity of God. It is not surprising that Christian thinkers, even when far removed from heresy, even when deeply aware of the totally new aspect given to the world by the gospel, did not, in their essays of theological reflection, immediately overcome patterns of thought which the whole tradition of thinking man imposed upon them. Even less surprising is the doctrine put forward by that Neoplatonism which was influenced by Arab thought and was attacked by St. Thomas Aquinas. According to this doctrine, each individual spirit was a divine essence whose final end was to return to the company and contemplation of the choir of its fellows, the separated spirits. The same thing was carried on in the schools that issued from the two great commentators of Aristotle, Alexander and Averroes. Each of these two opposed but closely related groups reasoned from the same principle which they never thought of questioning one held man to be a properly eternal being while the other held him to be an individual destined wholly to die depending upon whether they saw him with avaros as the one intelligence or with alexander as an individual appearing in time but whatever the arguments of these groups and each group sought to align itself with Catholic orthodoxy as against the other. They agreed equally in rejecting as meaningless any kind of personal immortality, and thus went counter to scholastics of every shade of opinion. If the intelligent soul is eternal in the future, declared the avarosed siger of Brabant in the 13th century, then it is eternal in the past a faithful echo of the classical ideas. One might take a final example from Marxist materialism in our own day as interpreted by Friedrich Engels and his disciples. He returns to the idea of an eternal matter within which nothing really new is created and in relation to which all the apparent advances of history are mere surface disturbances which will come and go indefinitely. But we may rest content with recalling, in a very different atmosphere, the various traditions of secret knowledge, occultism and gnosis, or rather, as St. Irenaeus called it, pseudognosis. Such traditions kept reappearing. They always declared that the universe as we know it, with its real or apparent multiplicity, is the result of a fall or splintering that we are ourselves made up of a mixture of the earthly and the divine, and that for us salvation consists entirely in separating, though the methods for doing so vary, the divine element from the earthly element, which is merely an obstructive accretion in liberating the divine spark, which is at present hidden under the ashes, so as to return to the dignity of our essence, by restoring primal unity. In the words of the Asclepius, Oh, what a marvelous mixture forms the nature of man. He is united to the gods because he has something divine in him which relates him to them. As for the part of his being which makes him earthly, he despises that in himself. One might compare this fragment of a Gnostic poem found at Turfan child of the light and of the gods, behold, I am an exile separated from them. My enemies fell upon me and carried me off among the dead. I am a God and born of the gods, glittering, resplendent, luminous, radiant, perfumed and beautiful, but now reduced to suffering. René Guénon taught the same not so long ago though his style is rather more metaphysical. To admit creation ex nihilo would be to admit by that very fact the final annihilation of every being born. For what has had a beginning must also have an end, and nothing is more illogical than to speak of immortality in such a hypothesis. Alone against all these systems refusing to be talked into either of their two opposing solutions, Christian philosophy opens for man the prospect of a new kind of life, which has been promised to him, and establishes the essential conditions that make it possible. While making heard from century to century a passionate protest against any deification of the world, whether it be polytheistic or pantheistic in form, it upholds in us the God given hope of an everlasting life, or a blessed eternity, in other words, of a divine immortality. It begins by declaring, with the clarity that allows of no misunderstanding, we have no natural relationship with God. There are those, says Clement of Alexandria, the first of the great mystical writers of our tradition, who dare to suggest that we are consubstantial with him. But I do not see how anyone who has once known God could possibly pay heed to them. Origen says the same in no less decisive terms. Is it not the extreme of impiety to hold that those who adore God in spirit are of the same essence as his unbegotten and blessed nature What sacrilege and impiety would not follow from speaking thus of God? And St. Athanasius says, What relationship is there between the Spirit of God and creatures, between him who makes and those who have been made? And so, with a common accord, think of those who have followed them, just as they themselves follow the gospel. To claim for ourselves the same substance as God, they all say with St. Augustine, is to speak sacrilege, sacrilegia dicere. It is a perverse opinion, perversa opinio. It is a great and most plain impiety, mania et apertissima impietas. This admission of our creaturely condition indicates no lack of boldness in them, quite the opposite, but their boldness is something quite different. Not presumption, but fiducia. Not Promethean presumption, but the boldness of hope. It is a total mistake to see in it the revival of the arrogant teaching from the African sheepio, to the Emilian in the Christian doctrines, which present deification as man's final goal. Christians know that God inhabits an inaccessible light. But there is another phrase which means just as much to them. Come unto him, and ye shall receive light. To the extent that they humbly believe the first, to the same extent they trust in the darkness of this world in the second. It is one and the same faith which makes them certain both that the depths of God are inscrutable to the mind of man and that they are known to the Spirit of God who wills to communicate himself to man. For the word only Son of the Father, imparts to the saints a kind of kinship with the nature of God the Father and with his own nature by giving them the Spirit. They know, therefore, that by reaching the high points of the heart, they will find the God who has made them for himself. Men will see God to live, made immortal by visions and coming to God. They are called inscrutable to man, perhaps because he cannot examine them by his own powers. But why could he not, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, if the Lord should deen to bestow this on him? For it is written, God inhabits an inaccessible light, and we nevertheless hear, Come unto him, and ye shall receive the light. This question is resolved as follows. As he is inaccessible to our powers, still we can arrive at him by his gifts. I estimate that the blueprint, schema, of the great head of family, patris familias, or of the court of majesty, appears in those who, climbing to the high mind, cor altum, made more high-minded by a greater liberty of spirit and purity of conscience are accustomed to greater daring, and wholly restless and curious to penetrate secrets, and to grasp the higher things, and to touch the more perfect things, not only of the senses, but also of the virtues. Such men therefore dare great things, for they are great, and what they dare, they get. In classical antiquity, on the other hand, Just as there was no real immortality except for divine natures, so also there was no returning to God for any soul that was not already divine in essence. Either, as Pindar perhaps thought when he gave himself up to the influence of mystical movements, the race of God and men is the same, or the race of men is one thing, the race of God's another in which case to dream of a divine destiny must always be an upsurge of desire and pride. It could only be a meaningless defiance hurled to heaven, a defiance which nemesis would always be certain to punish. Thus the sage is the man who works out his reasons and is content to be enclosed within the limits of his nature. Finibus nature contentus, as Cicero says. There is much indeed in the human heart that lends itself to such wisdom. As a Bantu song says, Man is below, God is above. Oh, oh, each is at home, each in his own house. And there are several interpretations of a similar saying in the Psalms. The heaven is Yahweh's heaven, but the earth he has given to the sons of Adam. In the days of Homer and Hesiod, The Greeks generally thought the same. Apollo confirms it in the Iliad. They will never be of one race, the gods who are immortal and men who tread the earth. And in the Odyssey, the soul of Achilles, summoned up from Erebos by the sacrifice of Ulysses, cries, Oh, do not beautify death to me, my noble Ulysses. And in the Iliad, Glauco says to Diomedes, when asked about his race before engaging in combat, As are leaves, so also is the nature of men. The wind spreads the leaves over the earth, and the forest grows and produces new ones, and spring comes. So is the generation of men born and destroyed. One can only be resigned. Any kind of impatience with limitations is sheer insanity heaven dwelling place of the gods is of bronze this is the fate which the gods have spun for poor mortals to live in sorrow whereas they themselves live exempt from all care fortunate beings they are jealous they humble anyone who rises and will let no one but themselves cherish lofty thoughts They hold fast to their rank, wishing to preserve intact their privilege and power. For having tried to climb to heaven, the titans were cast into Tartarus, for the gods are just as jealous among themselves. Prometheus, in his turn, though acting only out of pity for unfortunate humans, was cast out and tormented. Your unhappiness is a lesson, says Oceanus, to him in Aeschylus's tragedy. Aeschylus tells us that each time ephemeral men give way to unbounded, fateful, and mad thoughts, Zeus precipitates them from the summit of their proud hopes down to nothingness. Hesiod, too, says the same thing. Even the first race, though it was a golden race, was already a race of perishable men. How much less, then, could there be any question of our seeking, as poor descendants, to rejoin the master of the gods who rumbles overhead, seated in his lofty palace? Even the heroes, that race of demigods who live in the Isles of the Blessed, remain forever far away from the great immortals. If there is any resemblance, any equality, even, in a sense, any unity, between man and the gods, then it is only in so far as those gods, created by man in his image, share in human miseries and passions, are jealous and quarrel among themselves. It is only in so far as they share in human weakness and mutability, for they, like us, are dominated by the great force, ultra divine or supremely divine, impersonal, blind without history or location, of fate. For all of us, men and gods alike, dwellers in heaven and on earth, have only the same borrowed breath of life, all appear bound together by the same chain of fate. Let us learn then, says the wisdom of old, to be resigned to the irremediable, to avoid a cruel disappointment, Let us learn systematically to reject any attempt at metaphysical hope and let us be content with clinging humbly with all our being to things as they are. Let us cultivate our own little garden. Hubris is the fate most to be feared. We must mistrust any deceiving ambition for it can only lead to horror and catastrophe. No mortal Aeschylus warns us again, should cherish thoughts above his mortal condition. And Euripides says, There is no wisdom in dreaming of anything that is not mortal. And when Aphrodite sees Hippolytus through the green forest, always beside the virgin Artemis, she observes in a disapproving and threatening manner that he has found their society higher than is fitting for a mortal. Pindar himself, once he no longer believes himself a god from birth, says, We must lower our eyes to what lies at our feet and realize what our vocation is in this world. Do not aspire, O my soul, to an immortal life. Man, he says elsewhere, is the dream of a shadow. And Lucretius, in his philosophic tongue, sad, slow, and spondaic, respis item quam nil nos antiacte vetustas, temporis eterni fuerit, quam nascimur ante, hoc igitur speculum nobis natura futuri, temporis exponit post mortem de nostram look back what nothingness for us was the old age of everlasting time before our birth it is the mirror in which nature shows us the length of time which will come after death the divine temptation however is forever reborn whatever a man may think with his reason he cannot stop himself having deceptive dreams constantly stirred by that impatience with limitations which he has in theory disposed of he continues to strain so to say at the end of his chain though every effort ends in disappointment each time he finds himself thrown back into his world of dust it is a wretched experience all antiquity giving up a false eternity only to fall back into the closed world of time bears witness to it Ancient thought was not unaware of the religious universe, but was totally unaware, I think, of the sphere of religious expectation, of hope. Christians, too, recognize the existence of a hubris, a wrongful excess, and without having to attribute it only to this or that mythical hero unconnected with themselves, can see it in Genesis in the essence of sin and the chief reason for the deterioration of humanity, which God must draw back with rigorous pedagogy to the realization of its natural limitations. But Christians know something more, something which the ancients did not, that the latter lacked hope was primarily because the very idea of a sursum and a superabundance, the idea of an order incommensurate with nature, the idea of something radically new, something we might call an invention in being, the idea of a gift coming gratuitously from above to raise up that needy nature, at once satisfying its longings and transforming it, such an idea remains wholly foreign to all whose minds have not been touched by the light of revelation. Equally foreign to them, then, must be the idea that goes with it, without which there could only be established the rule of the arbitrary and the meaningless, destructive both of essences and of the laws of reason. For the idea of superabundance presupposes or entails the idea of a certain power, of a certain innate openness in beings to that superabundance the idea of the possible gift presupposes or entails the idea of a certain fundamental and interior aptitude for receiving that gift. If God is one day to speak to his creatures in order to bring them to him, then it is certainly necessary for him to have made them in advance as open and questioning. In other words, it is certainly necessary for there to be a kind of twofold call inscribed by God in the very makeup of these creatures, a call which is as vague and indeterminate in its import as one likes, and which could have remained hidden forever. This twofold call comes from God's initiative, and it sounds from within the creature as a first natural response. Of course, let me say it again. Just as he has willed to give himself to men, God could have willed not to do so. Just as he has willed to speak to them, he could have remained silent. Every Christian accepts this. In any case, that affirmation that he might have withheld his gift or remained silent is implied by the recognition of the gift and of the word that is heard. Just as he can be constrained by nothing, either from within himself or from outside, in his creation of the world, so nothing can constrain him to give it a supernatural finality. But what we must reflect on is still that creation as it exists, with the unique final end which it has, that creation as affected by God precisely with the object of giving himself to it, that creation as finally illuminated for us by the good news announced to mankind one night at Bethlehem. Of that fundamental aptitude, that call within nature, that hidden but active reality, the ancients may well have felt some effect, or perhaps rather some expression, some sign. The magic flight of certain civilizations of the past has been taken as evidence that they did. But they did not as yet have the means of interpreting correctly what they felt. They knew neither what it was they were looking for, nor how to look. They were quite unable to distinguish the real meaning of that organic spark of uncertainty, of longing and of discontent which lies at the depths of mankind's inmost being. When they did not succeed in extinguishing it, it obsessed or even deranged them. It could only result in rebellion, followed by a falling back into despair. They could only raise nature too high or bring it down too low, a fragment of the divine or the dust of the earth, or a chance and unsteady mixture of the two. Since they could discern in themselves nothing of truth, wisdom, and justice, they could not imagine that they were nonetheless capable in some sense of these divine things or realize that their greatness consisted precisely in that capacity. It was not possible for them to say, like St. Bernard, or with the depth of significance he gave the words, my expression, verbum, is neither wisdom nor justice, but it is nevertheless capable of both. Aware of the hazards of their birth, they could not seriously believe themselves made for eternity. They could only consider it a ridiculous presumption to link the expectation of a heavenly generation with what they knew of human poverty. There it seemed to them that their only choice lay between an insupportable arrogance and thoughts of utter lowliness, and the best and most far-seen among them saw both together without ever succeeding and really uniting them. For, as Berul explains, they believed they had enough power over nature to speak as though it were obliged to become perfect, and yet they proposed nothing great, nothing higher than man. The human inheritance these men of old have left us is a fine one, but it is short. Their religious spirit was often profound, and we should be wrong to scorn their message for us and not recognize with the fathers how much preparation for the gospel is in it. But ultimately, their efforts achieved nothing. St. Thomas Aquinas notes this with deep sympathy on several occasions. They never found the remedy for what Jacques Maritain so aptly calls the great pagan melancholy. For they never heard the echo in their mortal hearts of that eternal and efficacious invitation to transcend that premature balance in which science, art, and philosophy strive to achieve for us a harmony that is deceptive. For all the profundity of their experience, they could only sometimes barely sense obscurely and often through a cloud the prose of human life. For they did not know of a God, the only being utterly without jealousy, raising up beings out of nothing in time in order to unite them with his eternity. Calling temporal men, he makes them eternal. Vulcans temporales facens eternos. They had as yet no understanding of a being without any past who could nonetheless be open to an eternal good. They had no conception of a finite spirit made to seek the only end worthy of it and the one good totally beyond it. They imagined nothing to compare with that marvelous change which St. Augustine was to sum up so perfectly. Being changeable, they were changed and made partakers of the unchangeable word. Mutabilis comutati Participes facti verbi incommunicabilis. They withdrew far from the common mass into meditating upon an illusory eternity, devoting themselves to making a kind of ghostly analysis of their being in order to work out from it the composition of the star of which it is a ray. Or, on the contrary, they felt weighed down with the rest by the burden of time and its perpetual revolving, finding nothing in life that promised anything but old age and death. In neither case did they have any hint in advance of that joyous discovery made by those who follow Christ, who have received the promise of an incorruptible inheritance, and who therefore can cry with St. Augustine, There happens in time a new thing that has no end in time. They had no reason to suspect that the electric wire of the line of death, stretching out before all titanic enterprises, was to break forever in front of the path of humility, via humilitatis, begun with the incarnation of the word of God. If they did not have the vain dream of thinking of themselves as set outside and beyond all these circles of fatality by nature, they could never even dream that one day mankind might give the triumphant cry. These circles have now been driven off. Explosi sunt. They knew neither that they were created out of nothing, nor that they could one day be born of God. In short, Knowing nothing of the word made flesh, through whom the miracle takes place, and having never heard the call of his voice, they did not know themselves. To us the good news has been told. This is the word which by the gospel hath been preached unto us. We have known him who has set us free from mortality. Whatever generation of Christian history we belong to, We have heard the evidence of those who have seen, heard, and touched with their hands the word of life. We know, and this is knowledge that might well strike us dumb with amazement, that God became man in order that man might become God. Our fathers in the faith say it afresh to each one of us. Because of you, he became temporal, so that you might become eternal. He came down that we might go up. He became mortal with us in order that we, with him, might become immortal. He has broken the thread of fate. He has expanded our horizons and gone before us into an ever new eternity. With St. Leo we repeat, Therefore, the humility of the divinity is our advancement. Or with St. Gregory, While he undertook the shadows of our temporality, he poured in us the light of his eternity. And with Hugh of St. Victor, because we were unable to follow him in his majesty, he preceded us in our humility. And from our sphere, he established a path so that we might be able to attain to his sphere. We must thus have a pledge and certain sign of what seems impossible and indeed unimaginable. And lest, perhaps, one should say, it seems impossible for mortals to become immortal, for the corruptible to lack corruption, for mere men to be sons of God, for temporals to possess eternity, from the following verse which is superior, accept the argument whereby you may trust in the matter of which you doubt. And the word was made flesh. Even today, it is just as likely for us to misunderstand what we are we tend to underestimate the seriousness of these sacred words and their unfailing newness at the level of reflection as at that of instinctive reaction. We always find it hard to realize all the implications of our faith, a noble creature and the capacity for majesty. Such a description of man seems in fact, rather too noble for us. We may even come to find it too demanding man When he was in honor, did not understand. Homo cum in honore esset non intellectsit. We find it no easier than the men of antiquity to grasp that man surpasses man. So we remain enclosed not merely by practical impossibility or ill will, but on principle in the circle bounded by human desires. We do not always understand what has been brought into the midst of time and into the nature of temporal beings so as to transform our distraction, distensio, into an intent, intensio, by that prize of the heavenly calling, palma superne vocationis, to which we are commanded to tend, turned inward upon our human smallness. Exiguitas humana. We neither know nor even wish to discover within us the void whose capacity will grow as it becomes filled with the fullness of God. The Creator's power imprints a movement deep within His creature, in the heart of the created being, at the moment of its creation. A deep and hidden movement, which is at first different and apparently contradicted by all the surface movements, but which underlies them all. By this movement the spirit, once free of all that holds it back, and as it were purged of all things, and having completed its novitiate on earth, leaps up to God with a certain surge which makes it impossible to stop at anything less than that goal which is its creator. The movement is inborn, and therefore spontaneous, with its roots lying deeper than any tendency or commitment of man's free will. A movement not of this or that individual, but of the nature all have in common. The movement of itself achieves nothing, since it indicates no kind of debt or requirement, It remains forever hidden in its deepest source and can always be interpreted in quite different terms, as has happened in so many aberrations, so many developments in history which grew out of it. All too often, indeed, we do not discern it. Revelation gives us the key, but we may not yet know how to use it, or perhaps we may fear to enter that sphere of mystery which it suddenly opens for us the idea Christianity gives us of what man is may meet several kinds of resistance, some commonplace, some more subtle. Man, when he was an honor, did not understand. But if we can accept it, then we will not try to evade the evidence of those great men in our tradition who have described it. Then, though in no way agreeing with those philosophers who are reluctant even to use such terms as spiritual nature or human nature, we would find no difficulty in recognizing, as Pere Joseph de Finance does in interpreting St. Thomas, that the laws of the dynamism proper to spirit are not identical with those of the dynamism of natural forms. There is an essential difference, Whereas the lower creatures make up the visible cosmos, in which man formerly could think he was completely immersed, have been created perfect in their condition with no expectation of anything higher, we recognize that human nature has not been created to remain within the terms of nature, but is in fact destined for a state far above its powers." Thus, we will unhesitatingly agree with St. Bonaventure when he says, Man is born to be raised above himself. We shall no longer feel obliged to agree with those writers who adopted as a truth of principle the following idea, which St. Thomas put forward as an objection to be refuted. Nature does not bestow any inclination to something to which all the power of nature is incapable of leading. Or this idea, natural desire does not extend itself beyond the faculty of nature. Or again, in man, nothing is natural but that in which he has potency, potest, through the mere active principles within him. Nor would we agree with them in taking the paradox to be a contradiction, just as they take for a basic principle what is only in appearance a piece of common sense. It seems to imply that nature gives the desire for the divine vision and that it cannot give what is requisite, requisita, for such a vision, for instance, the light of glory. It is pointless to repeat the old argument drawn from Aristotle, however many new twists one may give it. If the stars had the capacity to move, vim progressivam, Nature would have given them the appropriate organs. I would reply in the same terms as all the great scholastics whom I shall be quoting in the next chapter that there is nature and nature, that the nature of spirit created by God's free decision for a supernatural end, freely chosen, is not comparable in every way either to the nature of material beings or to the uncreated nature postulated by the ancient philosophers, and that therefore nothing relevant to the case of spirit has been said, either by the statement of the old principle, or by the argument about the stars, or by any other arguments of the same kind. The capacity of the human heart is too great, even for the whole world to fill it. But we must also declare the complementary truth, the recognition that man comes to have of his capacity for God and of the natural desire corresponding to it has its necessary context and a recognition of the gratuitousness of the gift which will fulfill it. For, like the realization and the conscience of what was before only a hidden possibility, it can but echo the endless wonder of the good news. Exceeding all joy, and all desire.